Right, good morning, One Covenant. I'm Jovian and I'll be your scripture reader for today. Today's scripture reading is found on the Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 40. Okay, this is God's infallible and inerrant word. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who, who first opens the womb shall be caught holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said before about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And there was a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Jovian, for reading scripture so well for us this morning. And thank you, Sam, for leading us so well as well. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Joe. I'm the associate pastor here at One Covenant Church. 
I was trying to not fumble that. So I'm a social pastor here at One Covenant Church, and I'm really so glad that you could join us for worship. And if this is your first time joining us, I just want to say uh, welcome to One Covenant Church, and I've not had the opportunity to talk to you. Uh, I'd lo- love to do so after this service. So we come now, and we return to our study of Luke's Gospel, and as we hear from God's Word this morning, let us come to Him in a time of prayer as we hear from Him. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you and as we worship you this morning, we recognize that we are lifted into the heavenly places and we are worshiping with the angelic host. We are worshiping with the multitude of saints who have gone before us, Lord. And indeed, what a spectacle that is, Lord, to be worshiping you uh, before your throne of grace. And Father, I pray that as we hear from your word this morning, would you encourage our hearts, Lord, with the gospel. And Father, would you refresh us with joy and with peace as we hear from your word. And so we entrust this time to your hands. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, we return to our study of Luke's gospel. And for this season, we are focusing on the life of Jesus prior to his public ministry. Now you may recall from our first sermon that Luke wrote this gospel to a man named Theophilus to give him certainty about the faith. And one way that Luke does this is by showing how Jesus fulfilled God's promises in the Old Testament. That Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. Now last week we saw this promise fulfilled with the birth of Jesus. His birth was declared by angels and he was born in a lowly manger. And all in all, it was a declaration that the Savior is finally here. Now this morning, we come to a fascinating section concerning the early days of Jesus. We find more than anywhere else in the New Testament, Jesus' experience as a newborn baby. And as we read this story, you realize that this baby, the infant Jesus, actually does nothing in this story. He doesn't say anything, and he doesn't do anything. And yet everything that was said and done in this story revolves around this child, the Savior of the world. And one of the prominent themes in this passage is the theme of waiting on God's salvation. Now, I take it that many of us are not fans of waiting, of the idea of waiting. And I confess to you that I'm not a fan of waiting either. In fact, the advent of modern technology and of fast shipping have actually made it much more difficult for us to wait. You know, the convenience that we have in this digital age has increased our demand for instant gratification. If Amazon tells me that there's a delay in shipping my order, I will probably be very upset. And the reason why I'm upset is because there's a delay. And there's a delay in the enjoyment of what I just bought on Amazon. And so this whole idea of delaying your gratification, delayed gratification, is actually an unpopular one in our day. And perhaps it's a big reason why Patience is such a rare virtue in our day as well. But what we'll find this morning is the important idea of waiting. And it's not just waiting in the abstract, but waiting on God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And what we'll find in our passage are three groups of people 
who exemplify this. There is Joseph and Mary, they're the first group, and then there's Simeon, the second person, and then Anna, the third person. And all of these people, they were waiting in different, in different ways upon God's salvation in the coming of Jesus. And from them, we can learn what it means for us to wait while trusting and hoping in God. We can learn from these people what it means for us to have hope in life and in death. And so let's look at our passage this morning, and we'll look at it in three points, hope in duty, hope in death, and hope in despair. Hope in duty, hope in death, and hope in despair. So let's begin with the first point, and if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 22. And this is what God says. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Luke here is highlighting for us the obedience of Joseph and Mary. And we see this idea of obedience repeated in verse 27 when it says that they did according to the custom of the law. And similarly, in verse 39, it says that they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. And what we find here is that Jesus' parents were obedient. They were obedient to God as his people. How so? And for one, in verse 21, as we saw, they named their child Jesus. And this was done according to the instructions of the angel Gabriel. And then we find two ways in which they were obedient specifically to the Jewish law. So the first was that Jesus was circumcised. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Now this was the standard practice for all Jewish male infants and you find this articulated in Leviticus chapter 12. It was a sign that was given to God's people and specifically to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 as a sign of God's promises. So to remind themselves of God's covenant promises, what we find is that Jew Jewish male infants had to be circumcised. And this means that Jesus, as a Jewish infant, he had to be circumcised as well. And this is particularly important because of what Jesus came to do. Now you may remember when we walk through Romans, Romans chapter 5, we find Jesus being described as the second or the last Adam. And Jesus, as the second or last Adam, he came to do what the first Adam failed. And the first Adam failed in obeying God completely. So if Jesus was not circumcised, and that would actually mean being disobedient to God himself. And in that sense, Jesus would not have become the perfect sacrifice to God on behalf of his people. And this is why it was so important for Jesus to be circumcised. So this is the first, first way that Jesus' parents were actually obedient to God. And the second was the purification. The purification that was performed as the family came to Jerusalem. And you find this in verse 22. And this is significant as well because of the precepts that we find again in Leviticus chapter 12. In Leviticus chapter 12, if you turn there, you actually find that, and we are told in Leviticus chapter 12, that when a woman gives birth, she will become unclean for seven days after giving birth to a male 
infant. And then 33 days after that, she was not allowed to touch holy objects until her purification was complete. And once this was done, there was a need for her to offer a burnt offering as well as a sin offering to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And we're told in verse 24 that the sacrifices offered are a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, according to Levitical law, the standard practice was to offer a lamb as a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon as a sin offering. And only families that were too poor to afford a lamb could offer a second turtle dove or a pigeon as their burnt offering. And so what we find here is the poverty of Jesus' family being brought to the fore here. And it's clearly evident here, and if anything, it actually reminds us once again of the humble state of their family. And all of this were done so that Jesus could be presented to the Lord in Jerusalem. It was a presentation that signified Jesus as belonging entirely to the Lord. And this actually reminds us of an account that we find in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we find a similar episode in the presentation of Samuel by Hannah. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you will know that Hannah was barren for many years, and eventually God answered her prayers and gave her a child by the name of Samuel. And soon after Samuel was born, Hannah brought him to the temple of the Lord and presented Samuel to God. And this was Hannah's way of saying that, Lord, you know, this child, my child, Samuel, he belongs to you. And likewise, Mary brought Jesus to the temple so that he may be consecrated to the Lord. It was a way of saying that Jesus belongs ultimately not to Joseph, not to Mary, but to the Lord himself. Now, as we noted earlier on, Luke is intent on giving us the obedience of Joseph and Mary. Now, why were they able to obey God in this way? Why were they able to remain obedient? And the reason why is because they believed in the promises of God. And we saw this previously when Mary encountered the angel Gabriel, and the way she responded to the angel was by responding in belief. She responded by believing in what the angel told her. And what we find here is that Joseph and Mary believed that God is a faithful God, and God is a God who stays true to his promises. And without this belief, without this trust, they would not have obeyed God himself. And furthermore, what we find is that Joseph and Mary, they have actually seen the fulfillment of God's promises with their very own eyes. They have seen Jesus, Jesus who was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Jesus who is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And they have witnessed the coming of the Messiah with their own eyes. And since Joseph and Mary had witnessed such a great act, such a great deed from God himself, they have hope that God will fulfill even more promises in time to come. And it is this very hope, this hope that comes from God that compels them and sustain the, sustains them in their 
obedience. Now, friends, have you witnessed the work of God in your life? Have you seen God's faithfulness present in your own life? And how do you respond to His faithfulness? Do you respond generally with obedience or do you respond generally with disobedience? Now, some may ask, you know, why should we still obey, especially since we are saved by grace? You know, there is a constant emphasis that we have here at One Covenant Church that we are saved by grace and not by our works. And yet, to be saved by grace means that we are now able to love God. It means that we're now able to love our Redeemer. And how do we express loving devotion to the God who saved us? The way we do so is through our obedience. Our obedience is the litmus test that shows the genuineness of our love to God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And furthermore, the way we express hope in God, and especially in a faithful God, is through our obedience. Because if God is faithless, if God is faithless, then why should we follow Him? Why should we follow a faithless God? And it's precisely because God is faithful, that He's faithful to us. This is the reason why we are called to live for Him. And this is the reason that compels us to live for Him. And so as we follow God, let us remember what God has already done while hoping in what He will certainly do in the future because God is faithful. And so this is one way that we express hope, which is through obedience or through our duty to God Himself. And in addition, we can cling on to hope in the face of of death. And this brings us to our second point. Now, the story tells us that Jesus' family was not alone in a temple. They were joined by other people, and one of them was a man by the name of Simeon. So let's look at verses 25 to 26 and find out a little more about this man. This is what it says. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, Luke doesn't give us a lot of details about Simeon, but what we do know is this, that he was a righteous man, he was a devout man, and this means that he was a godly man in the eyes of people. Now, we're also told that he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, it's interesting that Luke tells us how the Spirit revealed something that Simeon couldn't have known by himself. In verse 26, the Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the Christ. Now, when Luke says that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, he's not referring to the way that the Spirit is present in every believer. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, that believers are God's temple and the Spirit dwells in us. So in that sense, you know, every believer has the Holy Spirit. But Luke is not describing that. Luke is not describing 
that reality that every believer has, that every believer has the Holy Spirit. Rather, he's speaking about the Spirit being present with Simeon in an extraordinary way. The Spirit in Luke, as one scholar puts it, is often the Spirit of prophecy. The Spirit spoke. Here in this passage, he spoke and revealed things that Simeon would ordinarily not have known. And here, the Spirit not only revealed something about Simeon's death, but he also revealed who the Messiah is. You see, it was impossible for Simeon to know that Jesus was the Messiah unless it was somehow revealed to him, that it was somehow supernaturally revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. It was revealed to Simeon that Jesus is the Messiah, the same Jesus who is the consolation of Israel. Now that phrase, consolation of Israel, refers to the Messiah who would come and bring comfort to his people. Jesus is the promised Savior who would remove the sorrows of his people. And this is the one that Simeon and the rest of God's people have been waiting for. And then, we're told, as Simeon entered the temple in the Spirit, we find him coming face to face with Jesus and his parents in verse 27. And then he embraced the baby Jesus in his arms and began blessing God. I wonder how many parents will actually let a stranger, you know, pick up their baby child and just, you know, just say, here, take him, you know, and allow them to embrace them. But it's interesting that here we're told that Simeon did that. He held Jesus in his arms. And then in verses 29 to 32, we find the words of Simeon's prayer to God. Now, the prayer that we have here is often called the Nunc Dimittis, and that is Latin for the phrase, now let me depart. Now, this prayer, interestingly enough, is a prayer that you find in certain church liturgies, and particularly in evening services as a way of looking forward to a night's rest, looking forward to sleep. Now, this seems appropriate in some ways because sleep itself looks forward or anticipates the ultimate form of sleep, which is death itself. And what Simeon is saying in this prayer is that he can now depart in peace. He, Simeon, has now seen the salvation of the Lord in Jesus Christ. And there's nothing else in this world that matters to him anymore. There's nothing that is holding him back now. Simeon, right now, is ready to meet the Lord after seeing Jesus. It's interesting that Luke gives us Joseph and Mary's response to Simeon's prayer. It tells us in verse 33 that they marvel. And we may even say that they marvel in belief because Simeon had just confirmed what they heard from the angel, that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises. And he came to redeem his people. And yet notice, notice what Simeon said to Joseph and Mary after this. Look at verses 34 to 35. This is what Simeon says. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, also referring to Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And what Simeon is saying is this, that 
Jesus will lead to the rising and the falling of many in Israel. And these ominous words actually reveal something important to us, and it and is this, that not everyone will receive Christ. Not everyone will believe in Him. There will be people who will oppose Christ. There will be opposition that comes against Him. And this includes opposition to those who are, who belong to Christ. And this means that there will be suffering. That suffering will come to those who identify with Jesus Christ. And Simeon tells us that even Mary herself will not be spared from this suffering. And yet this suffering is not something that, that should threaten us. And yet this suffering is not something that overshadows those who belong to Christ. Instead, those who suffer in Jesus Christ, there, there's no need for them to fear, even if that suffering takes them to the brink of death. They can say, together with Simeon, that they are ready to depart in peace. Now, friends, do we have this same expectation? Do we have this same hope in death as Simeon? Or perhaps we should ask this question, you know, what does it mean for us to have hope in death? Now, last week, Pastor Z, he quoted Benjamin Franklin, who famously said that there are two things in life that are unavoidable, death and taxes. And so he focused on taxes, so today I'm going to focus on death. Now, death is an unavoidable reality for all of us, all of us who are mortal, even though we don't really like to talk about it. And yet we live in a culture that basically denies death. And we actually see this in various movements, and we see this in an intellectual movement, something like transhumanism. Now, transhum what is transhumanism? Now, transhumanism is a movement that seeks to enhance the human condition through the use of technology as an attempt to transcend our limitations as finite creatures. And yet we need to ask ourselves, we, we need to ask ourselves, you know, why all of these efforts? You know, why pour in billions and billions of dollars to enhance the human condition? Why spend all of this effort? Why are we trying so hard to delay death to the point of basically denying it? Now, perhaps one big reason is this, that our denial of death, you know, all of that is actually rooted in our denial of God. And once we leave God out of the picture and without God, there is actually no hope for us. There is no eternal hope for us. There is no hope beyond the grave if God doesn't exist. And to know that, it actually makes death all the scarier. It actually makes death that much more scary. And it's precisely the fact that God exists. It's precisely the fact of God's existence which gives believers hope for the life to come. Hope in death, what that means basically is hope for what comes after death. And for Christians, death basically is like falling asleep. For us, it's like falling asleep in the arms of Jesus and waking up to find yourself home at last. And this is the hope that we have in death. Now, for the past 10 years, um, I've experienced the death. I've experienced many deaths, but I've experienced the death of at least one relative each year since 2013. And so this whole idea of death was never far off 
from my mind. In fact, it actually becomes a very sober reminder to me that mortality is very real, that we are mortal creatures. And perhaps we need to be reminded of this, not simply when we attend funerals. Yet when we trust in Jesus, we have the confidence that death no longer has the last word. You know, just as Simeon embraced Jesus back, back here in Luke chapter 2, so then we are called to embrace Jesus as our own. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 to 57, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus is ours, he gives us victory over death. And Jesus, what he does is that he gives us a longing in us to be with him. And Paul actually puts it quite remarkably in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And my prayer is that we will grow in our longing to be with Christ, that we will grow in our longing for Christ. And it is this very longing that gives us hope, even in the face of death. And finally, Luke helps us to see that there is hope even as we face despair in this life. Now here, in Luke chapter 2, we meet another character who was present at the temple, and this character is Anna, the prophetess. Now we're told in verses 36 to 37 that she was a prophetess, and she was a prophetess from the tribe of Asher. Now this is noteworthy because Asher was one of the ten tribes in northern Israel that went into exile for their sin. And by Jesus' time, it would have been impossible, almost impossible, for anyone to trace their ancestry to any of these tribes. And despite this, Anna knew her tribe, and Anna remained faithful to God. And in this sense, you know, Anna actually represents the faithful remnant among God's People, And this is what we find in the detail that she came from the tribe of Asher. And what we are also told is that she had only spent seven years in a marriage. She had only spent seven years with her late husband before she became a widow. And this means that if we do the math, if we do the calculations, that she was actually a widow for much of her lifetime before reaching the age of 84 years old that we find in the passage. And notice as well, that Anna was not alone. Look at verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So what we find in verse 38 was that Anna was speaking to people and she was speaking to people who were waiting as well. Now we don't see Anna mentioning Jesus to these people in this section, but it seems clear based on the context that she met Jesus and was praising God for this encounter. Anna was thanking God for the redemption of Jerusalem that's finally here. Now, why did Luke give us all of these details about Anna? You know, what's the significance of knowing these things about Anna? 
Now, the author, Rebecca McLaughlin, she made some helpful observations, historical observations about Anna in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. And this is what McLaughlin said. She said that at the age of 84, Anna would have witnessed the turning of tables in Jewish history. You see, in 63 BC, you know, Anna would have been alive then, the Romans conquered Jerusalem during the reign of Pompey the Great, and this came to be known as the Siege of Jerusalem, and this spelled the end of Jewish sovereignty. And as a young woman, Anna would have witnessed all of that. You know, she would have seen the devastation of being conquered by a foreign nation, and perhaps this would have led her to doubt whether God was still faithful to his people. In addition, she was living in a period of God's silence. Now remember, as we say in the first, in the first sermon, that God was silent. He was silent for centuries. You know, God had not spoken to his people since the days of the last prophet, Malachi, in the Old Testament. And it was a silence that lasted for centuries. And this silence would have been painful. It would have been deafening for anyone who called themselves God's people. And at a more personal level, Anna, she would have been distraught by the death of her late husband seven years into her marriage. And when you bring all of these things together, when you bring this together, it actually leaves you wondering if she was anything but deep in despair. And yet, what did Anna do? You know, what did Anna do in the midst of her despair? She didn't scroll through her Instagram feed. You know, she wasn't scrolling through all of that. She wasn't looking at YouTube videos. She wasn't looking at TikTok videos. She wasn't distracting herself. She wasn't simply wallowing in her pain and her misery. She, wasn't, she didn't recoil from the world that took away everything from her. You know, perhaps this is our own tendency. Our own tendency is to recoil from anything that might remind us of our losses. And what we find here in this passage is that Anna, she didn't do all of that. She didn't wallow in her misery. She wasn't just distracting herself from her pain. Rather, the text tells us that she was fasting and praying night and day. She was waiting upon God's salvation through fasting and praying. And this is remarkable because so much of Anna's life, so much of her life was marked by losses. And, and even though much of her life was constructed by the loss that she experienced, Anna was not paralyzed by it. Anna was not blinded by her losses. Instead, she remained hopeful. She remained hopeful that God will fulfill his promises to redeem his people. And just imagine if Anna decided to stay away from the temple on that very day. Imagine on that very day, Anna decided to just not go to the temple and just stay at home to remind herself of her misery. What would have happened? Well, she would have missed the very salvation of Jerusalem. She would have missed the joy of seeing Jesus. Now, friends, what do we do with the despair that we feel? You know, what do we do with the losses that we've experienced. Now, it wouldn't be wrong for Anna to grieve her losses. Now, we're not told in this text, but it's actually difficult to imagine that she was somehow above sorrow. And for us, what often happens, you know, in the midst of 
of grief in the midst of despair, what happens is that we actually find ourselves staring far too long at our losses. We actually remind ourselves of our losses time and time again. And what that does is that it simply locks us up. It locks us up in the darkness. And we find ourselves in this tunnel and it seems that there's no light at the end of this tunnel because all we see are the losses that we have. And when this happens, you know, everything can seem hopeless. Everything can just feel downtrodden. It can just feel like there's nothing but despair for us. And in fact, if you want to talk about distress, if you want to talk about despair, perhaps there was no greater sense of hopelessness than what the disciples saw at the cross. Can you imagine the anguish that they felt when they saw their king hanging on the cross? Can you imagine the grief that Mary felt when she saw her precious son lying dead on the cross? Can you imagine the anguish and the despair that they were feeling? And yet, there was light at the end of the tunnel. And the light came on the third day when the risen Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene, not the, not the mother of Jesus, but Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. And what we find is that after this encounter, Mary left and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And this was the light which the disciples needed. And this is the light that all of us need. By rising from the dead, what Jesus did was that he has defeated darkness. Jesus has vanquished darkness once and for all. Jesus Christ has defeated death once and for all. And Jesus, by rising from the dead, he has come to comfort those who are down in despair. And because of this, Jesus has given us hope in this life. Now I say this with full acknowledgement that despair seems easier on some days than others. You know, there are days when you just feel like, you know, just not doing anything, when you just want to go to your bed and start weeping and start hiding in the darkness and you find yourself crying out to God, why, God? Why, oh God, why have you taken this away from me? Why have you taken my closed one away from me? Why have you taken everything that is precious away from me? Well, what we find, not just with Anna, but with Simeon and with Jesus' parents, is the abiding faithfulness of God in our lives. And we see this climatically in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. And for this reason, we can look to Jesus and we can look to Him again and again and find Him holding us in His firm hands. And this, my friends, is the hope that we have in life and in death. Now as we conclude our time together, you know, I was reminded of a catechism that came out of the 16th century Reformation called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question of this catechism is given as follows. What is your only comfort in life 
and in death. And the first part of the answer says this, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, we can have this comfort because of the hope that has come to us in Jesus Christ. The consolation of Israel is our consolation. And because of this, we have a hope that we can cling on to in the face of despair. We have hope in life and death because of what Jesus has done. And so as we look forward, as we look forward to the days ahead, as we look forward to the challenges ahead, and though we, are, though we have no idea what lies ahead, my prayer is that Jesus will be our only comfort in life and in death. And I pray that our hearts will be drawn away from the darkness and that all of us will be brought into the light of his comfort and his love. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And thank you that in Jesus, all despair, all hopelessness are now cast far away from us. And Father, we pray that you'll keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We pray that you'll weaken, that you'll weaken our attachment to the things of this world. And Father, we pray that you'll keep us ready and eager for the glory that awaits us when we see you face to face in eternity. And so hear our prayers, O Father, as we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.